in the dark. One hundred candles. One hundred stories. Welcome to the One Hundred Ghost Story Adventure Podcast. Where did the 100 Ghost Story Adventure begin? Well, it began a very long time ago, in an ancient world. It is the time of the Bon Masuri in Old Edo. In the sweltering summer night dressed in our yukata, we wander the city. Walking the streets, lanterns for the dead are hung to guide them home for the festivities. At a local shrine, a group of townsfolk are performing a bon odori, welcoming and celebrating their ancestors. While we are strolling through the back streets, we overhear a group of young samurai. It seems they are seated in a back room of their master's home. The four of them boast of their bravery and challenge each other to prove themselves. One of them suggests a ghost story night, and the group agrees to the challenge. Through the open shoji, we see them clearing the room. Before them, they arrange eight candles placed in a circle. One samurai lights the candles one by one. The rest extinguish the remaining lamps in the room. They kneel around the circle, ready to play the Hayakamangatari Kaidenkai. The rules are simple. Each samurai will take turns sharing stories from their villages during the night. They are to remain till the final story is proof of their bravery. Should they leave, huh, it seems the first is ready to speak. There once was a falconer and a hunter named Shoujo. One day when he was out hunting, he could not find any game. Day had turned to twilight, and on his way home, at a place called Akuna, he spied a pair of Oshidori swimming together in the river that he was about to cross to kill these ducks is frowned upon. But Shoujo was so, so very hungry. He raised his bow, took aim, and shot at the pair. His arrow pierced the male, killing him instantly. The female escaped into the rushes on the opposite shore and disappeared. Shoujo took the dead bird home and cooked it. That night, he dreamed a strange dream. A beautiful woman came into his room, standing by his pillow, weeping. She wept so bitterly that Shoujo felt his heart being torn while he listened. Why? Oh, why did you kill him? Of what was he guilty? Atakumana, we were so happy together and you killed him. What harm did he ever do to you? Do you even know what you have done? Do you know what a cruel, what a wicked thing you have done? For me too you have killed. For I will not live without my husband. Only I came to tell you this. Her crying pierced to the marrow of Shoujo's bones. Me, Kururada, Soshisa, Monowo, Akunanamano, Mokomo. No, Zukio! I do not know what you have done! 
You cannot know what you have done! But tomorrow, when you go to Akumina, you will see. You will see. So saying and weeping, she disappeared, seeming to dissolve into the night. When Shoujo awoke in the morning, this dream remained so vivid in his mind that he was greatly troubled. The woman's words kept echoing in his head. But tomorrow, when you go to Akumina, you will see. You will see. He resolved to go to Akumina at once. He wanted to learn whether his dream was anything more than dream. When he got back to the riverbank, he saw the female Oshidori swimming alone. At that same moment, the bird spotted Shoujo. Instead of trying to escape, she swam straight toward him. Eyes locked all the while in a strange, fixed way. At the last moment, she suddenly tore open her body with her hooked beak, died before the hunter's eyes. With this, I blow out the first candle. After his story, the samurai reaches over and snuffs out one of the candles in front of him. Each samurai will take a turn telling Kaidan. Each samurai will extinguish a candle as they complete his story. Many years ago, the priest of Mujinyama wanted a big bell for their temple. The priests decided to ask the women of their parish to help by contributing their old bronze mirrors for the bell. Many of the women in Mujinyama did so gladly. At that time, a young farmer's wife presented her mirror to the temple to be used. But soon afterwards, she regretted giving the mirror. She reminisced on all the things that her mother had told her about it. The mirror had belonged not only to her mother, but to her mother's mother and grandmother. She became so very unhappy. She regretted giving the mirror so very much. If she had had money, she would have offered it to the priests to recover her heirloom, but she did not have any. Whenever she went to the temple, she saw her mirror lying behind a railing in the courtyard with hundreds of other mirrors heaped together. She knew it by the pine, the bamboo, and the plum flower relief on the back. She longed for some chance to steal the mirror and hide it away. She would treasure it always. However, the chance did not come. She felt as if she had foolishly given away a part of her life. The words of the old saying, a mirror is the soul of a woman, haunted her. She feared that those words were true in weirder ways than she had ever before imagined. She dares not speak of her pain to anyone. When the time came, all the mirrors contributed for the Mujinyama bell were sent to the foundry. Slowly, the mirrors were melted down to become the new bell. As they smelted the bronze, the bell founders discovered that one mirror among the lot would not melt. They tried again and again and again and again to melt it, but again and again and again and again, it resisted their efforts. The foundrymen suspected that the woman who had given the mirror to the temple 
must have regretted giving it, since she had not presented her offering with all her heart. Her selfish soul remained attached to the mirror, keeping it cold and hard, even amid the sweltering furnace. When the townspeople heard of the phenomenon, everybody knew whose mirror would not melt. The poor farmer's wife became very ashamed and angry because this public exposure of her fault, she could no longer bear the shame. She drowned herself in the river, leaving only these words behind. When I am dead, it will not be difficult to melt the mirror and cast a bell. But to the person who breaks that bell by ringing it, my ghost will give you great wealth. As you know, the last promise of anyone who performs suicide in anger will possess supernatural forces. After the dead woman's mirror had been melted, the bell was successfully cast. As soon as the bell had been suspended in the court of the temple, the townspeople remembered the words of that letter. They felt sure that the spirit of the woman would give the breaker of the bell wealth. They came in multitudes to ring it. With all their might, the townspeople swung the ringing beam. However, the bell proved to be a very good bell. It bravely withstood all of their assaults. Nevertheless, the people were not discouraged. Day after day, at all hours, the townsfolk continued to ring the bell furiously. They did not heed the protests of the priests. Day in and day out, the bell was struck. The priests could not endure it any longer. In the dead of the night, the priests cut down the bell. They rid themselves of this horrific beast by rolling it down a hill into a nearby swamp. The deep swamp swallowed the bell up, silencing it forever. That was the end of the bell. Only its legend remained the bell of Mugyan. Since the bell had been rolled into the swamp, of course, there was no more chance of ringing it to break it. However, this did not sway those who knew of the legend. At times, people would symbolically strike and break objects substituted for the bell. They hoped to please the spirit of the owner of the mirror that had made so much trouble. Among these folks was a dissolute farmer who lived near Mujanyama, on the banks of the river. Having wasted his fortune in riotous living, the farmer made a clay model of the bell out of the mud in his garden. When he beat the clay bell, he broke it. Out of the ground before him rose the figure of a white-robed woman with long, flowing hair, holding covered jar. I have come to answer your fervent prayer as it deserves to be answered. Take this jar. She put the jar into his hands and vanished. The happy man rushed into the house to tell his wife of the good news. In front of her, he set down the heavy covered jar and they opened it together. They found that this jar was filled with 
But no, I really cannot tell you. And with this, I blow out my candle. Many years ago, there was a holy priest living in the temple of Saito near Kyoto. One summer day, this good priest was returning to his temple after a visit to the city when he saw some boys abusing a black kite. They had caught the bird in a snare and were beating it with sticks. Oh, the poor creature. Why do you torment it so? We want to kill it to get its feathers. The priest pitied the bird. He persuaded the boys to let him have the kite in exchange for a fan that he was carrying. When the boys left, the priest set the bird free from the snare. It had not been seriously hurt, and it flew away. Happy at having performed this Buddhist act of merit, the priest resumed his walk. He had not gotten very far when he saw a strange monk coming out of a bamboo grove coming towards him. The monk respectively saluted him. <laughs> Sir, through your compassionate kindness, my life has been saved. I now desire to express my gratitude towards you. The priest was astonished at hearing himself thus addressed. Really, I cannot remember having seen you before. Please, tell me who you are. It is a shame that you cannot recognize me in this form. I am the black kite that those cruel boys were tormenting. <laughs> you saved my life. There is nothing in this world more precious than life. I wish to return your kindness in some way or another. If there's anything that you'd like to have, or to know, or to see, anything that I can do for you, please tell me. I possess, in a small degree, the six supernatural powers. I can grant almost any wish that you express. On hearing these words, the priest knew that he was speaking with a Tengu. Thank you, my friend. I have lived long to care for things of this world. I am now 70 years old. Neither fame nor pleasure means anything to me. I am only anxious about my future birth, since... That is a matter no one can help me in. It is useless to ask about it. Really, I can think of only one thing worth wishing for. It has been my lifelong regret to not attend the great assembly on Vulture Peak. Ah, my friend, if it were possible to conquer time and space so that I could look upon that marvelous assembly Oh, how happy I would be. That pious wish of yours can easily be satisfied. I perfectly well remember the assembly on Vulture Peak. I can cause everything that happened there to appear before you, exactly as it occurred. It is our greatest delight to represent such holy matters. Come this way with me. The priest was led to a place among pines on the slope of a hill. Now, you must only wait here for a little while. Keep your eyes shut. Do not open them until you hear the voice of the Buddha preaching the law. Only then can you look. When you see the appearance of the Buddha, you must not allow your devout feelings to influence you in any way. You must not bow down, nor pray, nor utter any exclamation. You must not speak at all. Should you make even the least sign of reverence, Something very unfortunate will happen to me. The priest gladly promised to follow these instructions. The Tengu hurried to prepare the spectacle. The day waned and passed, and the darkness came. The old priest waited patiently beneath a tree, keeping his eyes closed. At last, a voice suddenly resounded above him. It was a wonderful voice, 
deep and clear like the pealing of a mighty bell. It was the voice of the Buddha proclaiming the perfect way. The priest then opened his eyes to Vulture Peak, listening to the good law. There were no pines about him, but strange shining trees made of the seven precious substances, and the night was filled with fragrance and splendor. In midair, shining as a moon above the world, the priest beheld the Blessed One seated upon the lion throne. Forgetting utterly his pledge, the priest cast himself down in worship with tears of love and thanksgiving. Oh, thou blessed one! Instantly the ground shook like a mighty earthquake. The stupendous spectacle disappeared. The priest found himself alone in the dark. Kneeling upon the grass of the mountainside, a sadness unspeakable fell upon him at the loss of the vision. Even more because of his thoughtlessness caused him to break his word. As he sorrowfully turned his steps homeward, the goblin monk once more appeared before him and said to him in tones of reproach and pain, Because you did not keep this promise which you made to me and heedlessly allowed your feelings to overcome you, the Gohotendo, who was the guardian of the doctrine, swooped down from heaven suddenly and smote us in great anger. And then the other monks whom I had assembled all fled in fear. As for myself, one of my wings has been broken. Now I cannot fly. The Tengu vanished. With this, I blow out my candle. In a village, there lived two woodcutters. Mosaku, Monokichi. Mosaku was an old man, and Minokichi, his apprentice, was a lad of 18 years. Every day they went together to the forest, about five miles from their village. On the way to the forest, there was a wide river to cross. Every day, the two used the ferry boat. Mosaku and Minokichi were both on their way home, one very cold winter evening, when a great snowstorm overtook them. When they reached the ferry, the boatman had gone away, leaving his boat on the other side of the river. It was impossible to swim, so the woodcutters took shelter in the ferryman's hut. In such a storm, they were lucky to find any shelter at all. There was no heater or fireplace. The hut was very small, with a single door and no window. Mosaku and Minokichi fastened the door and lay down to rest under their straw raincoats. At first, they didn't feel very cold. They thought the storm would be over soon. The old man almost immediately fell asleep. Minokichi lay awake a long time listening to the awful wind as it continued to slash the snow against the door. Outside, the river roared and the hut swayed and creaked like a boat at sea. Every moment, it became colder and colder. Minokichi shivered under his raincoat. Despite the cold, at last, he too fell asleep. In the night, Minokichi was awakened by a showering of snow on his face. The door of the hut had been forced open. By the snow light, he saw a woman dressed all in white in the room. She was bending over Misaku, blowing her bright white smoke breath upon him. She turned to Minokichi and stopped over him. He tried to cry out, but he could not utter any sound. The white woman bent over him, lower, 
and lower, until her face almost touched him. She was very beautiful, and though her eyes made him afraid, for a little time she continued to look at him in the eyes, and then she smiled. I intended to treat you like the other men, but I cannot help feeling some pity for you, because you are so young. You are a very pretty boy, Minokuchi. I will not hurt you. But if you ever tell anybody, even your own mother, about what you have seen this night, I shall know it, and I will kill you. Remember what I said. She turned from him, rose up in her white flowing robes, and passed through the doorway. He found himself able to move. He sprang up and looked out, but the woman was nowhere to be seen. The snow was driving furiously into the hut. Minokichi fought the wind to close the door. He secured it by fixing several bundles of wood against it. The wind had blown it open. He thought he might have been dreaming and mistook the gleam of snow light in the doorway for the figure of the woman in white. He could not be sure. He called to Mosaku. He was frightened because the old man did not answer. He put out his hand in the dark and touched Mosaku's face and found that it was ice. Mosaku was dead. By dawn, the storm was over. When the ferryman returned to his station, a little after sunrise, he found Minokichi lying senseless beside the frozen body of Mosaku. Minokichi was promptly cared for. He remained ill for a long time from the effects of that terrible night. He had been greatly frightened by the old man's death. He said nothing of the vision of the woman in white. As soon as he got well again, he returned to his calling. He went alone every morning to the forest, coming back at nightfall with the bundles of wood. In the winter of the following year, one night as he was on his way home, he overtook a girl traveling the same road. She was tall, slim girl, very good looking. She answered Minokichi's greeting in a voice of a songbird. As he walked beside her, they began to talk. And the girl said that her name was Oyuki. She had recently lost both of her parents. She was going to Yido, where she had some poor relatives who were to help her to find a situation as a servant. Minokichi soon felt charmed by this strange girl. He asked her whether she was yet betrothed. She answered laughingly that she was free. Then, in her turn, she asked Minokichi whether he was married or pledged to marry. He told her he had only a widowed mother to support. Since he was young, the question of an honorable daughter-in-law had not yet been considered. After these confidences, they walked for a long while without speaking. As the proverb declares, when the wish is there, the eyes can say as much as the mouth. By the time they reached the village, they had become very pleased with each other. Minokichi asked Oyuki to rest a while in his house. After shy hesitation, she went there with him. His mother made her welcome and prepared a warm meal for her. Oyuki behaved so nicely that Minokichi's mother took a sudden fancy to her, persuading her to delay her journey to Yido. The natural end of the matter was that Yuki never went to Yido at all. She remained in the house as an honorable daughter-in-law. Oyuki proved a very good daughter-in-law. Five years later, when Minokichi's mother came to die, her last words were words of affection and praise for the wife of her son. Oyuki bore Minokichi ten children, boys and girls, all handsome children, and very fair of skin. One night, after the children had gone to sleep, Oyuki was sewing by the light of a paper lamp. Minokichi watched her. I see you sewing there with the light on your face? It makes me think of a strange thing that happened when I was a lad of 18. I saw somebody as beautiful and white as you are now. Indeed, she was very like you. Tell me about her. Where did you see her? Minokichi told her about the terrible night at the ferryman's hut, about the white woman that had stopped above him, about the silent death of old Musako. Sleep or awake, that was the only time that I saw a being as beautiful as you. 
Of course, she was not a human being. I was afraid of her, very afraid. She was so white. Indeed, I have never been sure whether it was a dream that I saw or the woman of the snow. Oyuki flung down her sewing and arose and bowed above Minuichi, where he sat. It was me! Yuki, it was! And I told you that I would kill you if you ever said one word about it! But for those children to sleep there, I would kill you this moment. Now you'd better take very good care of them. Or if they ever have any reason to complain of you, I will treat you as you deserve. Even as she screamed, her voice became thin, like the cry of wind. She melted into a bright white mist that spiraled to the roof's beams, shuddered away through the smoke hole. Never again was she seen. And with this, I blow out my candle. The room is getting darker and darker. It is said that the telling of stories and the extinguishing of candles can have a strange effect. It has the power to summon the dead. The 100 Ghost Story Adventure Podcast presents Origin Part 1 Recorded live at NonCon in Kirtland, Ohio on October 7th, 2017. We wish to thank all those who attended the recording and hope they had a wonderful time. Portions of this podcast have been re-recorded. The 100 Ghost Story Adventure is available at podbean.com and iTunes. Part 1 stories were Oshidori of Amir and Abel, Story of Atengu, Yokiona. Origin was adapted from traditional stories by Matt Zucker. Stories were edited from the original material to fit the production. Theme music is Instinct by bensound.com. This podcast was produced and directed by Matt Zucker. Your performers tonight were Matt, Amanda, Chris, Steve, Amy, George, with very special appearance by Cara Mia. Follow the 100 Ghost Story adventure at 100ghoststory.wordpress.com, on Facebook at 100 Ghost Story Podcast, on Twitter at 100 GSA Podcast. If you would like to share a story for future episodes, please write us at inquiryparanormal at gmail.com. Thank you, and join us again. <laughs>